My name is Adam Eberhardt, and you are listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. You're listening to the Daily Emerald Weekly News Wrap-Up. It's Saturday, May 20th. Here are the three biggest stories from the past week. First, the School of Journalism and Communication has finalized its 2017-18 budget plan, revealing that the school is planning to save $400,000 through even more faculty cuts. Then, the HECC has denied next year's UO tuition plan, which would increase tuition by 10.6% for in-state students and 3% for students from out-of-state. The current ASUO slate supports the tuition hike, but next year's incoming slate has disagreements with the tuition plan. For our final story, Alex Tizon, an SOJC professor who died on March 23rd at the age of 57, had his article My Family's Slave published on the June cover of The Atlantic magazine. It has been met with mixed reactions. I'm Alec Cowan, and I'm an opinion editor for The Daily Emerald. I'm Max Thornberry, the senior news editor for The Daily Emerald. And I'm Francisca Monahan, the senior podcast editor at The Daily Emerald. Our lead story comes from Wednesday when the SOJC announced the budget plan for the 2017-18 school year. The school needs to reduce its general operating expenses by $1.9 million by fiscal year 2020, and the dean of the school, Juan Carlos Molleda's efforts in the new budget plan will save approximately $500,000. In the interim, the office of the provost is providing $800,000. Max, you reported on this story. What can you tell us about the labor costs and what these cuts will look like? The email sent by the dean of the SOJC to UO students said that approximately 93% of the school's budget is related to labor costs. So Maeda has acknowledged the difficulty in balancing a budget that's largely built on instructors, on people. So he's attempting to minimize what he calls non-renewals, which are professors whose contracts were not renewed for the upcoming year. A total of 11 positions are being cut next year from the teaching ranks, mostly from part-time instructors. Cuts will be made to campuses both in Eugene and Portland, uh, and this includes the five instructors who were cut before May 1st. Eugene is losing one career non-tenure track faculty member, and four full-time positions are going to be cut as well. Cuts in non-academic areas are part of the plan as well. The SOJC has eliminated two positions from its business office by creating a shared business center with the College of Design, according to the memo. And staff attrition and reduced services are other areas Maeda is saying that the SOJC is going to address as they move forward. Maeda wrote that the SOJC expenditures have grown more than 50% since 2013, and the email further stated that schools across campus are struggling with increasing expenditures while also dealing with decreased enrollment, but the SOJC has, according to Maeda, quote, outpaced that of all the other schools. So the SOJC has spent more than its budget allocation for the last two years, according to the email. So this is a, a recurring problem for the SOJC. They have kept, they have dug themselves into a hole and they've kept themselves there in recent years. Mm-hmm. So cuts are accounting for around $400,000. So where is that additional 100000 going to come from? So the additional 100000 is going to come in the form of revenue brought into the school rather than being cut out of budgets by a revamped master's program. So... In the proposal, the three master's programs the SOJC offers will be expanded by hiring a graduate recruitment manager with funds from donors. So the manager will be responsible for increasing enrollment in the programs, and that's how they are planning on making up that extra $100,000 in addition to the $400,000 in cuts. As part of the budget setting process, the school has also identified courses with low enrollment, and those classes will have some sections cut beginning in fall 2017. Our second story today, since the HECC denied UO's 10.6% increase for next year's budget plan, controversy has sprung up over how to handle the university's projected $8. million deficit. 
Current ASUO president Quinn Haga was the only student government representative from the five Oregon colleges to advocate for any tuition increase at all. The incoming ASUO slate has disagreed with the ASUO's position on the subject and disagrees with an increase in tuition. Will Campbell reported on this story. Max, what are the motivations for increasing tuition next year? So Natalie Fisher, the current ASUO vice president, said that the tuition increase was necessary in order to find a middle ground between a 0% increase that would spur deep cuts across the university or a 20% increase that would have solved the university's budget problems entirely. Students in the crowd last Thursday were shouting shamed at, at Fisher after she endorsed the tuition increase. And although she realizes that it sounds, quote, oxymoronic, according to Will Campbell's article, she doesn't want tuition to increase, even though she's advocating for it. So one step that ASUO is taking in order to make up some of this difference is on Thursday, they phone banked. About 50 students came together and were calling legislators in Salem in order to try to raise money for the school. If Oregon, if the University of Oregon can raise $100 million, then tuition will only have to go up 5%. So that's the the benchmark. That's the the target that they're setting for themselves right now. I think a lot of people might be asking why this decision appears to be between the burden falling either only on students or faculty, especially since the school is constantly building new facilities and spending on things like sports. Is there another area that could give for these budgets? Why are these cuts targeting instructors? It's really quick. I want to talk about buildings and sports. Generally, when money comes in for buildings or comes in for athletic programs, that money has been given to the university specifically for those things. So the university can't take that money and spend it on something else. So if you're walking by a building and you see a, a name on a building, someone gave money to the university in order to build that building or to build that wing. So President Schill can't say, thank you for the $5 million. I'm going to put this into money for scholarships because that's not what the donor gave money for. So tuition dollars are pay for things like electricity, for paper, non-wireless internet connections, Title IX investigations, and the salaries of professors and instructors. Cuts around campus are, are bad right now. There has been a lot of talk about this, but they would be much worse if tuition didn't increase. The projected $8.8 million shortfall was based on the idea that the 10.6% increase was going to pass. Last year, United Academics, the faculty union, bargained with the university in order to increase the pay of, of faculty members on campus. So with increased costs for to pay for things like professors, decreased enrollment, and decreased state funding, that's why the university is having these issues right now. The biggest area that they can cut from is faculty. Our final story today, Alex Tizon, a professor at the SOJC who passed away on March 23rd, had his story, My Family's Slave, published posthumously on the June cover of the Atlantic magazine. Tizon was not aware that it would be published on the cover before his death, and his wife, Melissa Tizon, told the Atlantic that he had been writing and struggling with the piece for five to six years. So what does it cover, and why has it been met with such controversy? Tizon's piece chronicles the life of this woman he grew up with in his home, uh, who he called Lola, which is the honorific, the Filipino honorific from grandmother, and kind of coming to terms and realizing what her life meant in the context of his family's life. Um, this woman was gifted to his mother back in the Philippines when she was a young girl and um, raised his mother and then raised Tizon and his siblings. And then uh, in the final years of her life, lived with Tizon until her death after Tizon's mother died. 
And the word slave is used to describe this woman's role in Tizan's home. And that wasn't apparent to him until he was 11 years old when he realized that she's not related to us. We treat her horribly and she doesn't get paid and kind of coming to terms with that situation. And the article, the story has been met with very mixed reactions from far beyond the University of Oregon. I I think that it's been really interesting to hear people talk about this. And so I read this story a little bit later than everyone else. I read it on Thursday night. And so I had I came into this story after hearing people talk about it. So I kind of had an idea of what to expect. Uh, but as I was reading it, like it, it was very powerful. And it was it, it painted this picture of what of a little bit of what Alex Tizone's life was like growing up with with a slave in his home in in America. And he says that his neighbors that people said that they were the the model immigrant family right and there was something about it that he knew like this this isn't right we aren't this model family but I also don't know if it's fair for people to be railing against him because as an 11 year old boy he didn't do anything he didn't stand up to his parents I don't his he said that his brother kind of opened his eyes to the situation of what was happening and I don't know how much control he had over that situation I mean it's very easy to stand on the outside and say, yes, you should have done something. You should have reported your parents to the police or to some kind of authority. But I don't think that I could have done that. So I, I understand the the frustration that people are feeling about the story and the, the difficult situation that he was in and the horrible situation that Lola especially was in. But I don't know if some of the criticism is fair. What do you guys think? Well, one of the largest points of criticism has been from reporter Susan uh, Keller, who was a who is a, a writer for the Seattle Times and who wrote Lola's obituary um, after she originally passed away, and she wrote an editorial um, discussing kind of her reaction to the article coming out. She actually had about a ninety-minute interview with Alex Dizon um, after the death to try and capture. Lola's personality um, for the obituary and this editorial is very much chronicling her reaction to the article as very surprised and she did not have any idea of kind of the true weight of Lola's relationship and she actually apologized for being kind of complicit in drawing this image of Lola as just this kind of devoted person who's who's there to help the family, um, which was something that Lola was painted as for her entire life. Um, I mean, the article, uh, Tizan's piece, discusses how the family would hide Lola's identity and kind of presence from guests um, and that they really didn't want to come to terms with having to show Lola to the public. And I think looking at the obituary in light of this article, um, it really comes to light that even in her obituary in in the Seattle Times, there was kind of this facade of who Lola was supposed to be for everyone else and how they should have seen her. And then that's why, I mean, this article, uh, Tizan's article is so, I guess, intriguing and also controversial because of how it addresses that image with honesty um, but then also, I mean, when you contrast it with the obituary, it leads to some questions as to why 
Tizan framed it that way um, originally as as just kind of this family helper. Um, and I, I also, I heard an interview with Tizan's wife, Melissa, on KUOW this morning um, about this piece and about the about her take on the reactions that have been coming in and about how so Lola did spend the last few years the last 12 years of her life with Tizan's family like with him and Melissa and living in their home and they paid her and they didn't force her to do anything but that she still she still did the dishes she still like cooked for them and she enjoyed taking care of their children and even though they told her that she didn't have to and I know that there has been criticisms that Maybe Lola did not realize that freedom was possibly a option for her. Um, she didn't have anywhere to go. She had lived her whole life essentially at this point, or most of it in the United States. And she just didn't realize that she could live a separate, complete life. And I I felt that it was there was a limitation to that, to the response of that question, because I mean, obviously it would have been cruel to like force her to do anything, but just this this she still lived the last 12 years of her life as this person in this home that took care of the family and I, I I know where that's that criticism is coming from but ultimately yeah I think the criticisms of this article it's it's such a complicated situation and no one can really understand it as much as Tizan did and his siblings but we don't we don't have Tizan to ask at this point to respond to that I that it's, it's such a shame actually that I, I find that it's really a shame that he was not able to see the publishing of this piece because I think that there is a lot of conversation that could have been had that is lost and while I really I mean it's an important story to have been published but at the same time it's just somehow it feels a little pointless now that we're not able to have this discussion anymore so obviously there is a lot of conversation about this and the emerald is writing a story about people's responses to this good bad and indifferent so if you do have any thoughts about this article please tweet uh at us at dailyemerald.com or send a response to news at dailyemerald.com that's our email uh, we would love to hear from you we want to be able to call some responses from listeners from readers about what you thought about about this piece all right and that's all we have time for today you can read more about all these stories online at dailyemerald.com my name is alec cowan i'm max thornberry and i'm francisca monahan if you'd like to hear more from the emerald podcast network you can subscribe to us on itunes and soundcloud or you can listen to these episodes right on the daily emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com and if you have a moment please leave us a review it helps other listeners find us and know that what we're making is worth listening to so thanks for listening <laughs>